Hi there, good afternoon and uh, welcome to my weekly Parsha this year. This week it's Parsha's Vayeshev. And uh, Vayeshev is a troubling Parsha. In fact, it's probably the most troubling Parsha in the whole Torah. And the reason it's troubling is because we come up against a scenario that's so disturbing and so jarring and so difficult for us to absorb that we kind of gloss over it and we try to pretend that it can't be the case. And I'm, I'm going to look at this Parsha today from through the eyes of, I'm not going to look at the Nesiva Sholem today. I know that we're quite used to looking at the Nesiva Sholem, but I want to change things up a bit. I've actually got the Sforim I'm going to be looking at today right here next to me. Um, the first one is the Bas Ayin. Now, the reason I'm looking at the Bas Ayin, last week was the Bas Ayin's yard site. And the Basayin was an extraordinary Hasidic leader who lived in Eretz Yisrael. And I saw a video clip of Reb Melech Biderman, who says that uh, there's so many stories about those who study the works of Basayin, of the, uh, uh, the, you know, the Divrei Torah on the weekly parsha of the Basayin, that uh, miracles have happened to them, and the people who have visited his kever have had miracles happen to them that I just want to focus a bit of attention on the Basayin. In fact, immediately after seeing that clip, I realized that I didn't have an up-to-date version of the Basayin. I ordered a new one. It's right here. It came a few days ago in the mail. And that's why I'm choosing today to say over Advatura from the Basayin. And I would like to recommend that everybody get a copy of the latest edition of the Basayin, which is widely available, which has annotations at the bottom. I'm actually going to make use of those annotations today, the Heoris that appear at the bottom of the main text. And uh, you, if you want to take a look at the source sheet, which is available, whether you're listening to this on SoundCloud or watching on YouTube, and once again, a reminder to, uh, to you, if you are a SoundCloud listener or a YouTube viewer, to subscribe to my channel so that you get regular updates when I upload a new shear, a new lecture, a new talk onto either of those uh, two outlets that you're able to access them immediately. But uh, if you want to download the source sheet, you can do so. It's on my website as well. And uh, some of you will have received this shear via my website, rabbiduna.com. And uh, you'll see that the new edition of the Bas Ein is so beautiful. They've really produced a masterful edition of the Bas Ein. And we're going to look at Advatur from the Bas Ein uh, first. Second, I'm going to take a look at my grandfather's Sefer. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that uh, when we begin taking a look. But what I wanted to mention is the fact that my grandfather, and of course the Bas Ein, is a very traditional commentary. Uh, because uh, obviously they subscribe completely to Chazal, but they are as puzzled by some of the aspects of this week's parsha as we all are. And I think it's reassuring to know that in the conclusion, as we're going to see of my grandfather's piece, which is one of the lengthier pieces that we have in his Sefer, because uh, his Sefer is generally bite-size, it's short divrei Torah, maybe a page or two long, but this one's four pages long. Um, and generally speaking, uh, it ends on a very positive, upbeat note. Uh, but in this particular case, uh, even though he tries to offer every level of rabbinic apology for the behavior of the brothers towards Yosef, at the end of it all, he's critical. 
and he just goes along with the reality of the situation, which is this, that the brothers of Yosef HaTzadik, the only one of the tribes, the only one of the Shvotim that is referred to as righteous is Yosef HaTzadik, but the brothers, their behavior towards him was wrong-footed and was wrong in the deepest possible way. And I think that we need to address this, we need to absorb that information, even though it's hard to take in, that in this particular situation, it seems that events were unfolding almost in parallel to the righteousness of those who were the perpetrators in these particular incidents. Uh, and we have to understand that the hand of God was somehow involved. And even if we are to subscribe to free choice, and of course we do, we believe in Bechira Chofshis. Nevertheless, we must understand that God has a plan. And in this plan, it would have happened either way that we were all going to go to Mitzrayim. In this plan, part of that plan was that there was a bit of a breakdown in the relationships in the family between the different brothers, the children of Yaakov Avinu. Let's take a look at the Bas Ayin to begin with, and we'll take it from there. So the Bas Ayin focuses on the posuk at the beginning of the parsha that describes um, Yosef HaTzadik as Ben Zekunim. Ki ven Zekunim hu loi loi ksoines pasim. So the posuk says, and if you, in fact you refer to the notes here, the uh, the notes gives you the full range of psukim. Eile told us Yaakov, Yosef ben Shvaisre Shona, Hoyeroyes Echov Batsoin. So these are the children of Yaakov, and it skips so right away to Yosef, Joseph, who was a child of Jacob. He was 17 years old. He was shepherding the flock with his brothers, and he was a nar. He was young, and he spent time together with Bnei Bilhar, Bnei Zilpah, Neshe Oviv, who were the concubine wives of his father. And Yosef brought their bad words, whatever it was that they discussed, that obviously they had certain gripes. And by the way, there's different interpretations to this. We're going to see the Medrash actually offers different choices as to how we to, are to understand the Dibba, the dibba Ra'a, that Yosef brought to his father. But I think that the consensus is that Yosef went to his father and discussed his brothers, the children of Leah, with his father. So there were six children of Leah, and all of them were obviously older than Yosef, and he discussed them in a negative light with his father, and that's um, how he is presented in the initial introduction to Parshas Vayeshev. How does the Posset continue? It says, V'Yisrael Ahavis Yosef Mikolbanov. It doesn't even give us um, Yisrael's direct reaction, but in a kind of indirect way, it describes Yaakov as Yisrael, Yaakov's um, attitude, his feelings towards Yosef. V'Yisrael Ahavis Yosef Mikolbanov. Yisrael, Israel loved uh, his son Yosef, from all the other sons. He loved him more, it would appear. Why? And there's two, one reason given and one result given. So the way we would translate that is, is he was a child of his old age, almost like a youngest child, but he wasn't the youngest child because Binyamin was born after him. So 
seems to be an ambiguous statement. We know what it means literally, but we don't actually understand its meaning because it doesn't make sense that Yaakov Avinu would have loved his son more um, because uh, because he was the youngest of all the other children. But let's see what we're going to what the Basayan is going to say about that. And then finally, it says Vaasa like pasim that Yaakov Avinu. Uh, created, made, fabricated, exonus pasim, we always translate that as a coat of many colors, but some fabulous garment that he gave to his son Yosef in recognition of the fact or to demonstrate how much he loved him and that he loved him more than the other children. Says the Bas Ayin, Hine yodua mamar chazal. We know that Chazal say, the, it's a Gemara in Sanhedrin, Dafyud Aleph, the Gemara says, Ro'uy hoyohilel, there was a great man in the period of the Second Temple. He's known as Hillel Hazokin. He originally came from Bovel. He arrived at the base medrash of Shmaya and Avtalion, and this was in the first century uh, BCE. It was uh, about a hundred years before the destruction of the base Hamikdash during the period of King Herod's um, uh, King Herod's reign, uh, when King Herod ruled over Judea. Hillel arrives from Bovel, comes to the base medrash of Shmaya and Avtalion, and becomes one of the most distinguished rabbis of his time. In fact, so much so that uh, it was his descendants that presided over the Sanhedrin, most famously Rabban Gamliel, and eventually his descendant Rabbi Yehuda Hanossi, who composed the Mishnah. So the Talmud speaks about Hillel Hazokin. He is a significant figure in uh, rabbinic Jewish history, and he, he figures in this Gemara, he features in this Gemara. The Gemara says, um, that Hillel was worthy that he should have had the divine presence rest on him, the same as Moses. But his generation was not fitting. In other words, they weren't worthy that, that such a thing should happen. I'm going to read you in here in the notes again on the bottom. That's what I told you. This edition is so marvelous. The, um, the notes at the bottom bring the entire uh, passage from the Gemara in Sanhedrin. Pam achas So this is a, a, a famous hangout for the great rabbis of the time, the attic in Beis Guria. And they were there together. Everybody was there in this place. It was, it was a meeting place. It was a lair house for all the great scholars of the day. And a heavenly voice rang out from heaven. There is a one among you upon whom the Shechina should rest itself. However, said the Baskoil, this heavenly voice, there is, no, there is no way that that could happen because the generation is simply not worthy of it happening. They wondered, who is it? I don't know how many people were there. Maybe it was 10, 20, 50. I don't know how big the attic was in base Guria in Yerichai. However, they were wondering to themselves who it could be and they reached the conclusion that they, they immediately uh, concluded that the only one whom the Baskal could be referring to was Hillel Omru Alov Hai Onov Tamido Shal Ezra. 
And the way they referred to him when they eulogized him was this humble person, this righteous individual, a Talmud of Ezra. Ezra, of course, was the foundational figure in the, um, the beginning of the Second Temple period. He was the one who formulated the Anshei Knesset Sagdoila. He was the one who brought the Jewish community together at the beginning uh, when they returned from Bovel and from the Persian Empire to re-establish the Beis Hamikdash in Yerushalayim. He's a significant figure and we, we chart the way through the uh, rabbinic history to, Hil- to Ezra. So Hillel inherited the mantle, as it were, of Ezra, and he's therefore referred to as his disciple. He wasn't, of course, his disciple, but this is the Mamar Chazal that um, the Bas Ayin brings with reference to the posit that we said before, which was, which was that Ben Zakunim, who lied that Yosef was a Ben Zakunim to Yaakov, but also like Sinus Pasim, and Yaakov made Exonus Pasim for his son Yosef. So, Perish Harav mi Polonoi. So we spoke about him last week, um, Yaakov Yosef of Polonoi, he was a Kohen. He was the original publicist of the Hasidic movement. He published Toldus Yaakov Yosef, among other Svarim. And uh, he was the one, he's the first one to record the statements, the Divrei Torah and the um, Weltanschauung, the, uh, the theology, as it were, of the Baal Shem Tov. And therefore, he's very often quoted by those who want to get to the origins of the revolution that was the Hasidic movement. So the Bas Ayin quotes the, uh, uh, the Toldus Yaakov Yosef. He says, If you want to know where to find Hashem, if you want to find God, if you want to really come encounter God, go to a place where there's Shiflus Hachnoava Anova. Go to a place where whoever the human beings are that occupy that place do not consider themselves very highly. They are submissive, they are humble, they are low in terms of their approach. Why? Because they recognize that material existence is secondary next to spiritual aspiration. The Hillel Gam Kain Hoya Onov, and we know from this Mamar Chazal that Hillel was a great um, Onov. He was extremely, exceedingly humble, like we know about Moshe Rabbeinu, who's referred to as the greatest uh, person of humility that has ever lived. Which is why, of course, Hillel, because he was no different in that respect to Moshe Rabbeinu, why it was he was worthy to uh, receive the Shechina. To, for the uh, divine presence to rest itself upon him, like it happened with Moshe Rabbeinu. That's why the Baskol, it wanted to focus on, on, not on Hillel's great scholarship or his leadership qualities, but on his anova, on his humility. It was his humility that really separated him from everybody else. He was more humble than everybody else, and for that reason, the Shechina should rest itself upon him. Omnam, amitis hashiflus v'anova shi'elatzadik gomur. Benokel, who kasher? How how is it possible for this level of humility, for this for this feeling of uh, you know of a, a, a lack of um, of godliness, or at least of this this sense of your own um, uh, diminutive level? 
of the fact that you are not of the highest quality. What what relevance is it to a tzaddik gomer? Benokel ukashem istaka v'roya tzaddik godomi menu sheovid Hashem beyirav ava gadol of achnova shiflus. How is it possible that a great tzaddik reaches these great heights of anova? It sounds ridiculous, but how is it possible to be a great onov? To be the greatest onov who ever lived. By the way, nobody who is a great onov will ever walk into the room and somebody's going to say to them, what is your greatest quality? He's going to say, ah, I'm the greatest onov who ever lived. No, it's obviously something they don't um, wear publicly. It's not something that they've got uh, written on a button that they've got uh, clipped to their jacket. Hello, I'm the greatest onov. But how is it that somebody who's a tzaddik gomor can learn to be an onov? How is it possible that they can achieve this status? The only way, says the Basayin, is if they study the behavior of a tzaddik who is greater than them in anivus. And if you find somebody who's extremely humble and you watch their humility, you will gain experience. You'll gain knowledge as to how it is that a person behaves if they are humble, what it is that you need to do, what it is you need to shed in terms of the human condition in order to be humble. Well, when you see a great tzaddik and you see how humble they are and how great they are in every other respect, you know, they're, they're great in their tzidkus, in their righteousness, they're great in their scholarship, they're great tamidei chachomim, they're great in every respect, and yet they're so incredibly humble. When you see that, you see what gap exists between who you are and what you could be and how humble you need to be by comparison to this e- exceptionally great person. And through this you will teach yourself anibus. Because when you see a great onov who for all intents and purposes could go around trumpeting themselves as one of the greatest people of all time and you yet and you see that, uh, uh, that the case is not that, that that's not the way they behave. They don't constantly trumpet how wonderful they are and tell you how special they are and what their achievements are. And when you see that they are great achievers who have this um, kind of low status in terms of their projection, they're not constantly trying to prove how great they are, then you'll see, because obviously you're not as great as them in their many great attributes, you'll see how much you have to be an on-of, because if they're an on-of at their level, certainly you should be an on-of at your level. What about somebody who lives, who's a great person, who is wonderful, who really is a high achiever in every possible way, but he lives among people who are not particularly special. In fact, they're quite, you know, they're quite minuscule in terms of their achievements, both spiritually and in every other respect. What happens if you live among such people? And he is a tzaddik. He's a great person. He doesn't see among those uh, uh, he lives uh, any great people. They don't exist. By the way, it's possible. You can be somebody who lives in a community of people or among a group of people and you know that you're better than them. It doesn't mean that you have a superiority complex. It just means that those people are genuinely inferior to you in the way that they behave. By the way, nobody's inferior to you because they're born in a particular family or with, you know, in a particular community. That doesn't exist. That's just prejudice. I'm talking about the fact that, let's say, you're somebody who, who has uh, been to yeshiva and has learnt many masechtas, or you're all very stringent in your observance of the mitzvah of Shabbos or kashras, 
or in the way you behave towards other people and you mix among people for whatever reason maybe it's in your work maybe your community's not particularly special hasn't worked on themselves in this way where they don't keep Shabbos quite like you do and they don't keep Kashras quite like you do and they're not as uh, careful in their behavior towards others as you are it's possible that you live among those people, but you, you have a disadvantage. What's the disadvantage? You never see a tzaddik in operation because you don't live in a place where there is such a tzaddik. So therefore you can't learn from them. They're not greater than you. Don't forget that mentorship is hugely important. You need to find somebody who's greater than you in order that you have something to aspire to. It's an aspirational goal and that is reached by associating yourself with a great tzaddik, with somebody who is a high achiever in the spiritual realm. And what if you don't live in, in a place where that's possible? Says that Bas Ein, In that place where you live, you don't see people who are greater than you. It's not a sense of a question of arrogance, it's a fact. That person will never be able to reach the ultimate form of shiflus, the ultimate form of anova. They won't be able to achieve that end. Why? Because they don't have that role model uh, by whom they can measure themselves because they are greater than all the people around them. But explains the Basayin, this was the problem, this was really the challenge that Yosef, that Joseph faced in his own family. So, if you want to know who Yosef HaTzadik was, Yosef HaTzadik was a person who was totally um, given over to emulating his father. So, if you really want to appreciate who Yosef was, he had the ability to behave incredibly well. Why? Because he was in close association with his father. But when it came to his brothers, he didn't quite have that same relationship. So, we have this um, gulf between Yosef and his brothers and he operates in a world where his only role model and what greater role model could you have was his father Yaakov Avinu Rashi immediately seizes upon this um, the language of the Posuk which um, closely connects Yaakov and Yosef together, that Yosef emulated, he was an echo, he was a carbon copy of his father Yaakov. He constantly compared and contrasted his own behavior and therefore his own achievements with those of his father who we know was much greater um, than him, at least at that stage he was a young boy and had achieved incredible heights. He was the Bechir HaOvois that we know from history and we know from what Chazal tell us that he was of all the Ovois the one who was uh, who worked hardest on himself and who achieved such incredible levels of spirituality. And Yosef knew that Yaakov was a greater Tzaddik than him. And that's what the Posuk means when it says and Yisrael, Israel, Jacob loved Yosef more than his other sons. Kiven zakunim hu loy, and it explains it. I told you there's two things it says there. Kiven zakunim hu loy, that he was a ven zakunim to him. We translated it that he was a child of old age. Vetirigem unculus, and unculus, who is the great Aramaic translator 
of the Bible text translates it as follows. Are barchakim hu lay. That's the words that Unculus uses. Perush chakim. What does the word chakim mean? And he, and he changes the meaning slightly. He says, He waited on him. He's, you know, in, in England, you have this expression, the queen has ladies in waiting. What does that mean? They attend to the queen. He was constantly attending to his father and therefore he was in his father's shadow. He was constantly behaving, um, emulating his father by observing his behavior because he was in constant attendance to him. L'shoin metzapel Yeshua, the same as we say he was waiting for redemption. He was hoping and always hopeful that he would achieve the greatness, the ultimate status of spirituality, which was his father Yaakov. And although he lived in a world where the, the rest of the people around him did not match up to him. And we know, as I said at the beginning of the shir, he was Yosef HaTzadik. He had this one beacon of light, this lighthouse, Yaakov Ovinu, uh, whom he was able to emulate, copy, follow, shadow, and uh, learn from. And therefore, um, he is referred to as Ben Zakunim, or as the Targum Unkelus says, Are Bar Chakim Hulei, which is um, Chakim is Lashoin Mechake. And what about the Osoloikasonis Pasim? What about the fact that it says that Yaakov Avinu made him a coat of many colors, this um, colorful or very splendid, uh, um, splendid um, coat that he gave to his son. What does it mean? Pasim umilashoin efes va'ayin. He totally changes the meaning of the word pasim. Pasim doesn't mean what you think of uh, it as uh, um, some kind of superlative definition or description of something which is extraordinary. Pasim means efes va'ayin. Nothing and nothing. You should know that the way that Yosef HaTzadik was able to elevate himself is because through this Ksonis Pasim, he cloaked himself, he wrapped himself in nothingness, knowing that next to Yaakov Avinu, he was never going to be anything special. And it was via this ability to lower himself to this Madrega of Shiflus, Properly, Yedabek es atzmei b'shem Hashem uvesayrasei b'remach mitzvayis asei ushasa loisa asei. He was able to completely achieve the levels that one achieves through the um, uh, the performance of the mitzvahs, the 613 mitzvahs in the Torah, the 248 mitzvahs that you must do, and the 300 and 65 mitzvahs that you are forbidden to do, or the, um, the loisases, which are referred to as negative commandments, those things which you are not permitted to do. Yosef achieved that. Why? Because of his close proximity to Yaakov, that of Israel, Ohav es Yosef Mikobanov. Why? Ki ven zekunim hu loi, zekunim bi barchakim mechake, he was in attendance to him, and because um, he was uh, wearing the Ksonis Pasim, he was an Efes Va'ayin. He didn't consider himself highly in proximity in comparison to his father Yaakov Avinu. So even though he lived 
in in a in an era where the people around him and that's where he unfortunately fell into the trap that he got into a discussion with his father about his brothers who hadn't achieved his level nevertheless he himself was somebody who wore the Ksenius Pasim he was the one who achieved the greatness that he achieved as a tzaddik because of its proximity to his father and it and it worked well for him because even in the many years that he was in Mitzrayim he was able to retain and maintain those standards because of his closeness to his father in the years that he was with him. We'll continue now with my grandfather. Safe, I told you I would, uh, I would uh, show it to you. This is a new edition of my grandfather's Safer, which we just published. This is the sixth edition. We have a beautiful um, Hakdosha here, a dedication that was given to me by my uncle, Rabbi Eliezer Duna from Bnei Brak, uh, who sent me this copy. Um, and we were delighted to sponsor the sixth edition. This is the title page. I think that Carly will put it on. For those of you who are watching the video, you'll be able to see this more clearly. And um, here it is, the Mahaduras Stern. And this particular edition was dedicated to Rabzev HaKohen Stern, Willie Stern, who was uh, my uh, brother's, my late brother's father-in-law, who passed away right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, very early on. He was one of the first victims of COVID, and we dedicated this edition uh, in his memory. I'm going to learn one piece we're going to share one piece from the Mikdash Halevi from my grandfather Sefer. And as I told you when we began the shir, my grandfather was somebody who was very makpid to stick very closely or as closely as possible um, to Chazal. Um, he never questioned Chazal. He would never in any way try to undermine a pshat in Chazal. And particularly when it comes to showing respect to the characters of the Torah who demand respect because of who they are or by criticizing those characters in the Torah who ought to be criticized because that's the way that Chazal presents them as objects of criticism that's very much the line of my grandfather in his Sefer he he really follows that line very very closely but as you're going to see in this particular piece I wouldn't say that he's struggling but he, we know where the conclusion is going, even though he bends over backwards in terms of apologetics to find excuses for the way the brothers treated Yosef HaTzadik. So we know that Yosef HaTzadik was uh, sent by his father to find out from his brothers when they were coming home or what they were up to. And when he came, they attempted to kill him. And ultimately, they were not successful in those attempts. And I'm not going to go into the details of the story. Of course, you're going to delve into it yourself when you read through the parsha. But ultimately, they sold him into slavery and he ended up in Egypt. And the rest we'll deal with in the coming weeks when we, when we look at uh, the rest of the parshas in Sefer Bereshis. But just to, to focus on this aspect of the brother's behavior towards Yosef. And as I said at the beginning, it's the most challenging aspect of the whole of Sefer Beratius, that these figures who we put on a pedestal, uh, you know, we don't consider them like Yishmael or like Esau, chas v'sholem. we consider the Shiftei Kar, as they are referred to, uh, the tribes of God, the children of Yaakov Avinu, to be of an extraordinary high, at an extraordinary high level. They're not ordinary people. These are the foundational figures of, of the Jewish nation. Uh, we you know, I come from the tribe of Levi. 
So we consider Levi to be an extraordinary person, and yet we know that Levi was part and parcel of the plot to kill Yosef HaTzadik. And in the end, he was complicit in the fact that Yosef HaTzadik was sold to the Egyptians uh, into slavery. So how do we reconcile our view of Levi as being one of the Shifte Kar with the fact that he was complicit in a crime, in a terrible crime he, uh, of kidnap, uh, of abduction, and of selling somebody into slavery and attempted murder. That's what my grandfather's piece is going to look at. I'll share it with you now. So the posuk there in chapter 37, says that the brothers saw Yosef HaTzadik from afar and before he was able to draw near to them, he never even got close, they already plotted to kill him. Parshas Mechiras Yosef says my grandfather, the Mikdash Alevi, the Parsha, the uh, episode in the Torah that deals with the sale of Yosef HaTzadik into slavery, Halohi Parsha Koshe Adlibaid. It's one of the most difficult Parshas to take on board as someone who wants to, um, to maintain respect for the characters involved in the story. We all know that these holy brothers, Shifteikar, they were at the most elevated level. They're totally inconceivable to us. In other words, we're not even going to get our heads around how special and how extraordinary they were. In which case, says the Mikdash HaLevi, how can we even understand this idea that they wanted to sell their brother and they actually went ahead and sold him? How are we to get it into our heads? We want to hold them in the highest esteem and yet this is presented to us in the way that it's presented to us and clearly it doesn't really, you know, when we hear the story we're not going to hold the people who were it, uh, the perpetrators against the victim um, you know, those who sold their brother into slavery as great people. So here he goes along with Chazal. So this is how it begins. The piece begins that uh, the Mikdash HaLevi is telling us that we all know from Chazal that the brothers didn't behave in a way that they felt was against the Torah. These were not simply bandits. These were not people who um, were murderers. That's not the case at all. These were people who operated within the confines of the law. Everything that they did, as far as they were concerned, was according to the law of Hashem. And that being the case, it wouldn't it be right that we should examine and look into what it is that was the law and how it was decided. How did they conclude that what they were doing was within the law? How is it possible to justify, to rationalize the sale of Yosef HaTzadik, their brother? Ulam. But before we do even that, we need to get to the bottom of what it was that created this rift between 
Yosef and his brothers. What was the basis? What was the foundation of their disagreement? The root cause of their disagreement might help us understand how the brothers concluded, how they rationalized the sale of their own brother. Shekemba Posuk. So we know from, for a fact that Yosef would tell tales, he was a bit of a tittle-tattle. He would tell tales to his father, he would say bad things about his brothers. But we don't know exactly what he said. The Pasuk, it, it's not even ambiguous. It's... It, it doesn't explain what it is that Yosef said. It just kind of gives a generic statement that Yosef would say bad things about his brothers. But the explicit understanding of what that means is not given to us, at least not in the Pasuk. Ulam. Prat zem The fact is that Chazal filled in the gap, as they often do. Umatsinu legabav mispar And we have... Um, various different opinions that are brought in the Medrash, in Breshis Rabbah, Pedalad, Zion, we can see three different opinions. What did he say? So the first one is the most famous of all, and it's the one that my grandfather is going to uh, um, go with. He's going to run with this particular ball in the piece that we're about to go through. So we know that there is a rule, a law, that you're not allowed to eat Eiver Min Hachai. It's one of the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noyach, and it's particularly stringent, as we're going to see when it comes to B'nai Noyach, that you're not allowed to eat a living animal. What does that mean? That you need to kill the animal before you eat any part of its flesh. You can't just cut off um, a limb of an animal while it's still alive and eat it. That's forbidden in the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noyach. And Rameer says that Yosef went to his father and said, I'm suspicious that your children, in other words, my brothers, are eating Ever Minachai. That's Rameer's opinion. Reb Shimon Oime, Reb Shimon, Reb Shimon Bayachai, says differently, says, Toilin hein enehem bivnoisa aretz. His, according to him, his version of events is that Yosef went to his father and said, I'm afraid that my brothers are interested in marrying um, the local girls here in Eretz Canaan. That was his um, take as to what it is that Yosef said to his father that might worry him, and that would be considered Dibara'ah. And thirdly, we have Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda Oimer, Mezalzalim Bivnei Hashvachais, another one which is better known than the version of Rabbi Shimon, that they are Mezalzel in the Bnei Hashvachais, that the six brothers, the children of Leah, are mistreat. They're disrespectful towards the children of the con concubines. The Kairin Lahem Avodim, and they call them servants. They, they, they're considered, at least in the eyes of the sons of Leah, said Yosef, as second-tier children, to the extent that they're almost treated as if they are slaves in the home and not children of Yaakov Avinu. They don't uh, treat them with equality. So those are the three opinions brought in the Medrash. So the Mikdash Alevi says as follows. Let's look at the opinion of Reb Meir. Reb Meir says that um, Yosef uh, challenged um, his father Yaakov about his brothers by telling him 
that they ate eva minachai, they ate meat from a live animal. Shekain boru lachalutin. It's totally and utterly clear to us. We, we don't have to be in any doubt. Shedvarav shel tzadik loy hoyu that there's no way that Yosef just made it up. This is not somebody who's going to come and make up a story about his brothers. It's not possible. It's not possible that Yosef comes and makes up a story, tells his father some lies. That he didn't make something up. He had to have some foundation to his story. It's also clear to us, looking back in retrospect and judging by what we know about the Shvatim, that there's no way that they were guilty of the accusation as is presented by Yosef to his father in the opinion of Rabmeir. So therefore, it's clear that Yosef thought they were eating Ever Menachai, and it's clear that the brothers were not eating Ever Menachai. Those two facts are absolutely clear. That means Yosef wasn't doing anything wrong by saying that they were eating it, and that the, the brothers were certainly not doing anything wrong because they hadn't eaten it. That being the case, we need to find, we need to reconcile these two seemingly irreconcilable positions. There had to be a foundational disagreement, some type of uh, dispute, a debate between um, these two positions, uh, between Yosef and his brothers, and says the Mikdash Halevi, that's what we need to explain, we need to understand it. We really need to understand what Yosef thought was happening and what his brothers thought that they were doing. The question really is, and the disagreement between Yosef and his brothers was, are we considered B'nai Noyach? Before Mount Sinai, yes, we have accepted that God is God and we're monotheists and we're heading towards the direction of receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai, but we're not yet Jews. If we are not yet Jews, do we still fall into the category of B'nai Noyach or do we have to observe the Torah can we observe the Torah like the Jews are going to observe the Torah after they receive it? So do we observe mitzvahs as if we have already received the Torah? Or do we observe mitzvahs as B'nai Noach? Now it happens to be that on a number of issues, the uh, mitzvahs B'nai Noach are more stringent in their application than mitzvahs that we received in the Torah. It sounds ridiculous, but here you're about to hear one example. Or, this is the position of the brothers, do we now um, exclude ourselves? Are we now uh, free from the obligations that are, were incumbent and are incumbent on B'nai Noach and would have been incumbent on us if we remained B'nai Noach? So the brothers, according to their position, they felt that they only had to observe mitzvahs up to the level of what it is you need to observe mitzvahs as a Bnei Yisrael. But Yosef HaTzadik clearly believed that you have to observe mitzvahs as if you are a, a Ben Noach. So says the Mikdash HaLevi, 
We know that law. We already said it. That a ben noach is not allowed to eat meat from a live animal. But we know that the ben noach doesn't have to go through the shechita process in order to kill an animal. That means they don't have to use a very, very sharp chalaf, a knife that slaughters the animal in the way that uh, we're familiar with through shechita. In fact, they have no particular direction in terms of how they should be killing an animal in order to eat it. There's no instruction, there's no expectation, there's no obligation. They can kill the animal in any way that they want. If, they, if you're not Jewish, if you're a Gentile, you can kill the animal as, in any way you want, as long as, obviously, that you don't cause them any grief or anguish. But if you wanted to take a gun and kill the animal, you can do it. That's permitted for a ben noach. As long as the animal's dead, you, then you can eat the uh, meat. Ulam. Hemuchuyovim levado shivas shebeis achila bosar habehema hitie mesa lechalutin. What they do need to make sure is that when they eat the meat of the animal, that it is completely dead. What does it mean to be completely dead? Now, that's a very interesting question. You're about to hear that completely dead has two meanings. Dead means not alive, but dead means also not moving. So according to the halacha, that if an animal is still moving, but it is dead, it's considered dead. That's according to the halacha that we, the Bnei Yisrael, keep. According to the mitzvahs b'nei noach, dead means you can kill the animal in any, any way you want. You don't have to do it through a very sharp knife and shechita, but you have to make sure the animal is no longer moving, it's no longer convulsing, and then you can eat the meat. Um, you can kill the method according to b'nei noach, the um, mitzvahs b'nei noach, and any method that you want. Ha-nechira, that's the word, the word for slaughter that's not shechita is nechira. Shehi harigas ha-behema shalayalidei shechita, muteres libnei noach, any method of killing is permitted. Nechira is permitted for, you know, you can be a hunter, and you can kill it with a bow and arrow, with a gun, and you could then eat the animal, that's not a problem. But you have to wait for the animal to be completely dead in order to eat it. But we know that for, for Jews, if the animal is slaughtered via a Nechira method, that means not Shechita, it's, it's not permitted, it's forbidden. We know that these, these halachas with regard to Shechita are absolutely sacrosanct and sacred. You cannot eat the animal if any of them, um, any of these halachas are not kept properly, or somehow there is any psul in the animal based on these halachas, or the method of slaughter, or any other aspect of the shechita process, you're not permitted to eat the meat. However, at the very moment that you do shechita on the animal, according to the halacha, as you're meant to do it, it can be eaten immediately. Even if it's still convulsing, if the animal still is moving, if at that moment you want, I don't know why you would want to do that, but if at that moment you wanted to cut off a piece of the meat and it's a minute or two later and the animal is still moving, you could do it. That's not considered alive. And from this we can see. Okay, listen carefully. So the Mikdash Halevi says that according to the brothers, their view was that their status is like a Bnei Yisrael. 
Now they have to do shechita. Once you consider yourself to be Bnei Yisrael, you must and can only kill animals that you're going to eat via the method of shechita. But they felt that nevertheless, when we're Bnei Yisrael in that we have to do shechita, but we're still Bnei Noach because it's before the giving of the Torah, so we don't have to wait until the animal stops convulsing before we eat the meat. You can still eat the meat of the animal. So they have the best of both worlds in a sense. Um, they, can, they can eat the um, animal while it's still moving, although they have to do shechita. Yosef's view was that if you're going to take upon yourself the laws of Shechita, then you have to take yourself the laws of everything else relating to Shechita. Um, uh, sorry. If you take upon yourself the laws of Shechita, that's you didn't have to do that, but that's what you have to, that's what you've decided to do. But nevertheless, you're still considered a Ben Noach. You can't now eat an animal when it's still convulsing. You were never at Mount Sinai. You still have to keep the stringency of the law as a Ben Noach. The laws of the Torah have a, do, no, do not yet apply to them. They still are considered Bnei Noach with regard to anything that is an Isur for Ben Noach. He said, okay, you're perfectly entitled to take upon yourself the stringency of Shechita and not to kill the animal by any method which we call Nechira. Nevertheless, you can't therefore, as you've taken that on, decide that you want to be lenient with yourselves. You can't decide that you want to eat the animal while it's still convulsing because that's forbidden to Ben Noach. You can take on the stringency of a Ben Yisrael, but you can't allow yourself a leniency as a Ben Noach if you're still considered a Ben Noach for all intents and purposes. Even if you did shech the animal according to the halachas that would apply if you were Ben Yisrael. So therefore we find, practically speaking, as far as they were concerned, Yosef HaTzadik, who didn't eat animals that only were shechted via shechita, he was quite happy to eat a Nechira animal because he considered himself a Ben Noach, which he was because the Torah hadn't been given. But they said, no, we think that you are not a Ben Noach and you need to eat animals that have only been uh, had shechita and yet you eat Nevelois, you eat animals that have, are not permitted to Jews and, uh, as you're going to see in a minute, have to be thrown to the dogs. If that's the case, they thought Yosef at Tzadik was not a Tzadik, that he's a Rosha. Shareu matir basa nechira kedin b'nei noyach. Because he allows himself to eat the uh, basar of a nechira slaughtered animal, um, like a ben noyach. And they said, you're not a ben noyach. Their psak halacha was, you're a ben Yisrael. Lu'umasam. Yosef sova ki echav oichlim eva minachai. But Yosef's opinion was, no, I'm doing the right thing. You've taken upon yourself an extra stringency, but you've now decided to allow yourself the liberty of eating Aver min hachai because you're not waiting for the animal to stop moving before you're eating the meat. You're 
You're not waiting. They weren't waiting until the animal had stopped convulsing. And it should be completely permitted even for those who considered B'nai Noach as he felt that they were. They were B'nai Noach and not B'nai Yisrael in terms of halacha. Says the Mikdash Shalevi, and now we can understand, using this as the foundation of the debate, of the disagreement, of the rift between Yosef and the brothers, now we can understand what happened and how they behaved towards him, even though you're going to see the twisters at the end, that the Mikdash Shalevi is going to um, demonstrate that even so, even though the brothers had what they considered to be justification, ultimately they became entirely subjective in their behavior towards Yosef. You have to wait until the end until you're going to hear that particular twist. But let's go through uh, the next piece. This is the foundation, the rationalization of the argument between the two um, the two factions here, Yosef on the one side and the six brothers on the other. They felt he'd done them great harm by telling tales to the father, which they felt were lies because he'd said simply that they were eating Ever Menachai. He hadn't explained um, and they hadn't been given the chance to defend themselves. He hadn't explained himself to Yaakov Avinu, and Yaakov Avinu may have just believed that they were guilty, as B'nai Noach, of eating Eber Menachai. But you've just heard the explanation as to what Eber Menachai they were eating, which wasn't in their eyes Eber Menachai, because they um, uh, upheld the halachas of B'nai Yisrael, um, and that being the case, they could eat the meat of an animal that was still moving. What did they do? The Medrash says, the moment they saw Yaakov Avinu, do you know what they did? They set their dogs on him. And I would explain it as follows, says my grandfather, the Mikdash Alevi. The Posuk says, If you find an avela, an animal that's died, natural death, it died in the field, you're not allowed to eat it. You must give it to the dogs. It's a very unique mitzvah that the dogs are allowed to obviously eat nevela, but you don't give it to the cats, you don't give it to any other animals that you may have in your possession, whether they are carnivores or otherwise. It's the dogs that are going to benefit from a nevela that you find in your possession, in your field. But Pasuk Mefurish, it says absolutely without any equivocation in the Pasuk, that it is... Um, the um, prerogative of the dogs to receive the meat from Nevelos and Trefos. And therefore, He who takes away from them that which they deserve, if somebody who eats their meat is stealing from them. They are allowed to, um, they are allowed to, as it were, take revenge on against him. They are allowed to get payback by claiming that which is theirs from him, from the person that took what was theirs from them. They felt that Yosef was a thief. He was stealing meat from the dogs. Why? Because he killed an animal in a way that he wasn't allowed to eat it, but he should have given it to the dogs, but he ate it himself. Uh, as a result of which he had somehow undermined the, um, the that which belonged 
to the dogs. He had taken that away from them. And therefore they felt it was entirely justified to set the dogs on him because the dogs should give him payback because he had taken away that which was theirs. Now they should get payback from him and they set the dogs on him. That they should get from him that which, I mean, it almost sounds like they, they set the dogs on him so the dogs should bite him and eat him. This was quite a violent act. Now, we know that that obviously didn't work because they didn't do that to him. When they got to Yosef, they didn't cause him any harm whatsoever. You're going to see that whatever the brothers tried to do to him, it didn't really work. They weren't very successful. The only thing that they succeeded in doing is selling him into slavery. Every other thing they tried didn't work. There's another Medrash which says that the brothers took four um, items of clothing off him. What did they take? I'm, not, I'm going to go through it um, fast without going through the Medrash in its entirety or the Posuk. They took away his cloak, his shirt, his pasim, and his michnesayim, his pants, his trousers, as we call them in England. He took them all away. They took them all away from him. His four items of clothing. The gamkan doime ki yecholim anu limtsay es hanhogas hamidok and We can see why they felt that this was payback. This was paying him back for the way he had behaved towards them. Why? Shekeno achim asheroshi yosem mevis dibosam roil aviem. They saw that he was trying to undermine them. What had he said to their father? Um, that would cause them harm. He was trying to take away the rights of the Bechoyer. What is the Bechoyer? Now, this is really interesting. I'm not going to read the whole piece. I'll explain it to you. It's fantastic. The, the right of the firstborn is that they become like the priests of the family. They take care of all the matters of the family and ritual affairs. And in fact, they inherit the father's, um, the father's possessions and also any rights he may have in terms of their, uh, the rituals. Now, what, um, what happened to the Bechayr? The Bechayr evolved into the Levium. And the Levium have a branch in their tribe called the Kohanim. And the Kohanim Peshutim, those who were the ordinary Kohanim, how many items of clothing did they wear? They wore four items of clothing. They wore their hat, they wore the shirt, they wore the um, gartel, and they wore their mechnesayim, they wore the, the pants. So there were four items of clothing which were deprived of the brothers, at least of Reuven, who was the oldest brother, because Yosef claimed as the first child of Yaakov's favorite wife that he should be the Bechayr. So this was a midah keneged midah that the Medrash presents us with, that the brothers took four items of clothing away from, uh, from Yosef because they wanted to deprive him of that which he had wanted to deprive them of. He had wanted them not to be Bechayr. They didn't want them to be the firstborns. He didn't want them to be the Kohanim. And therefore, he wanted to be the Kohen. And this was a symbolic removal of four items of clothing to show him, you wanted to be the Kohen. We're taking that status away from you. We're removing those four items of clothing because you're not the Bechayr and Reuven is the Bechayr. How it evolved ultimately is not important, but the symbolism is very, very, uh, very incredible. It's quite powerful. 
We also see that the brothers threw their um, uh, brother Yosef into a pit. They took him and they threw him into the boyer. And the posuk quite mysteriously informs us that the boyer, the pit, was empty. There was no water in it. And Chazal, they kind of bit fixated with that uh, with that posuk because it doesn't really make much sense i mean you throw him into the pit who cares if it doesn't have water in it and they said yes uh, the medrash says it's actually a gemara in chagiga daf gimel omadalef what does the posuk mean when it says that the boy was empty and that there was no water if I would already, if I've told you that the boyer is rake and it doesn't have water, of course it doesn't have water. If it's empty, it doesn't have water. Mayim ain't boy. There was no water in the boyer. But there are nechoshim and there are akravim. There are snakes and there are scorpions. This was a kind of... Um, uh, they contracted the murder of their brother out to snakes and scorpions because they didn't want to kill him themselves. They threw him into a pit that didn't have any water in and they knew therefore that it would be full of snakes and scorpions and they thought that the snakes and scorpions, again, it was an abortive attempt because they weren't able to kill him. He still didn't die. The dogs hadn't killed him, the snakes didn't kill him and the scorpions didn't kill him and eventually he was extracted from the boyer and sold into slavery. Says the Mikdash Alevi, my grandfather, he puts it so beautifully. He says, In the simplest possible way we can understand. They thought to themselves, how can we punish him for his um, evil slander against us? Let us cast him to the snakes. They are the ultimate representatives of evil slander, of evil speech. Um, ever since the nochosh, the evil um, snake, at the time of the of the uh, Gan Eden episode with Chava, where he managed to coax Chava into doing something because of his uh, very uh, evil way of speaking, he was able to present a case to Chava by tricking her through the way that he spoke into doing something that she shouldn't do. Similarly, Yosef was tricking their father by telling him bad things about them and therefore his punishment, his, the punishment that was most fitting him was to throw him to the snakes. It's a midor keneged midor. They threw him into a pit full of snakes. So that there would be this, um, uh, this I guess, fitting punishment for Yosef for having been a malshin, for having been a slanderer, to be punished by being uh, killed by snakes that are true representations of the ultimate in evil speech. So to end this off, my grandfather says, it appears as if the Shvatim behaved totally equitably, that the way they behaved to behave towards Yosef makes a lot of sense because they had a dispute with him. They felt they were right and he was wrong. And therefore they behaved towards him as one behaves towards somebody who's wicked and evil. They felt that he was somebody who didn't commit mitzvahs properly. He ate meat that he wasn't meant to eat. Somebody who slandered them 
unnecessarily. Somebody was trying to take away their birthright from them and therefore everything that they did to him made perfect sense on that basis. It was truthful. There was integrity involved, even though we may say, okay, come on, it was subjective. They didn't uh, uh, put him in front of a proper court. It wasn't really dealt with properly. They just, it was a bit of a kangaroo court. They dealt with him uh, ad hoc. But nevertheless, we can see there's some logic to what they did. Shekoil Everything that they did was some that was that was based on righteousness, and it was midah that was a payday that was that Yosef deserved. It was payback. And he says, and this is the kicker, it's a beautiful piece at the end, it, that how he explains, it's just wonderful how he explains this whole piece. He says there's a posik in the Haftorah from Amos that we always say with Parshas Vayeshev, So says God unto the three sinners of Israel, or three sins of Israel, and on four that you will not be um, returned for, paid back for. Speaking about the sale of Yosef. So there seems to be a three here and a four. On the three, it's okay. And on the fourth one, um, I, I cannot forgive you. There's no forgiveness that is worthy of this fourth one. What is it talking about? We can see that there were four different bad things that the brothers did to Yosef Atadi. What were they? Number one, they set the dogs on him. They took away his stole, his four clothes. They stripped him bare of the four items of clothing. They threw him into a pit full of snakes and full of scorpions. And finally, they they sold him into slavery. Says my grandfather, look at this beautiful piece. Now we can understand. He's telling the Jewish people, as it were. On the three first ones, on the fact they set dogs on him, on the fact that they took his clothes away, and on the fact that they threw him into the pit, they can be forgiven for that. Why? Because they were doing it based on their assessment of the situation. Not on the fourth avla that they did to Yosef. That cannot be forgiven. The fact that they sold him into slavery. That cannot be ever forgiven. Says the Pasuk. Why should that be the case? Says my grandfather, ask a good question. If you're going to say, what's the worst of all the four? For sure, selling their brother into slavery was the worst one. It was the one that caused the most damage, the most harm, the most pain, because they lost their brother for so many years. That's the one that really is the worst one. Why weren't they punished for that one? Hare he ha amida as Yosef besakonas chayam muchoshis 
by selling him into slavery, they were putting his life in real and genuine danger. The other things never affected him, but they didn't know what was going to happen to him if they sold him into slavery. It could be he'd be killed immediately in a year, in five years, and it would be done. So, I made a mistake. In fact, of all the four, the one that's the least um, life-threatening is the one that sells him into slavery. Why is that the least? Because by selling him into slavery, he's still alive. The other three were putting his life in danger. So why does the Posuk say that for the first three, he won't be punished, but for the final one, he will be punished? It should be the other way around. It should be that for the one, the three first ones, they should be punished. And for the selling him into slavery, that's what kept him alive. For that, they shouldn't be punished. So my grandfather says that the Posuk, in the way that we have explained it, doesn't make any sense. The Posuk in Amos should be the reverse. It should be that for the first three that the Shvatim should be punished in the way that they were. So says my grandfather, not at all. If it's true to say that the first three were justified, then you don't punish people for behaving in a justified way. Even if they're wrong, at least they can be justified and you can forgive them for that. You, they can come to you and say, listen, the way we behave may have been wrong, but we had some justification. We can rationalize our behavior. However, if we're going to look at it um, uh, in terms of what they did finally, if we're going to see that ultimately they sold their brother into slavery, on what basis did they sell? There was no midok and midok here. He'd not sold them into slavery. He'd done nothing which was even comparable. And therefore, there's no rationalization. There's no foundation. There's no justification for them selling him into slavery. And on that basis, we know that their behavior towards him is entirely subjective. And the fact that they sold him into slavery was due to their hatred for him. That is something that's unforgivable. That is something that they cannot be forgiven for. And that's what I said to you right at the beginning. That ultimately, even though the Mikdash HaLevi offers an incredible array of apologetics for the brothers' behavior towards Yosef, we are still left with this conundrum. The ultimate conundrum, which is how such great people behaved in such a subjective manner, without justification towards their brother, towards Yosef. Yosef, who at all times had done nothing wrong even if you're going to say that he could have behaved in a better way ultimately done nothing wrong and we see it's revealed to us through their selling him into slavery that ultimately they'd sold him um, sold him because of their hatred towards him not because there was some justification for the way that they behaved towards him i will leave it here for today thank you so much